Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gautier. Welcome to this week's episode of The Flow Line. We're joined today by another special guest. Like many of us, this gentleman started off as a mud hand in the field, and through his relentless pursuit of providing quality service, combined with an entrepreneurial spirit, decided to start his own drilling fluids company, which is now CES Energy Solutions, the parent company of AES Drilling Fluids. Ladies and gentlemen, Matt and I would like to welcome our CEO, Tom Simons, to the show. Tom, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. How are you doing today? Hey, good morning, Justin and Matt. Things are good. It's a day after or two days after Canadian Thanksgiving. Yeah. Things are pretty good. I'm fat and happy. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. So where are you joining us from today? You're not in Tofino anymore. Are you back in Calgary or where are you at? Yeah, spent the weekend on the coast with my kids and family friends, but have been in Canada because of COVID since March 6th, it's still onerous to come back into Canada from the U.S. Mm. Two weeks self-isolation upon return. So riding it out in Calgary at the moment. Yeah. So if you had to pick one place to go, where's the first place you're going to go across the border? Well, it'll be the Dale to clear customs in Casper, but it would be to go to Wyoming or okay. Wyoming. Go to Midland. Go yeah. where the that's That's been the view justin of what you and i have had and even matt before we knew him you went to the u.s because there was more work and more opportunity same reason i bought a house there a year and a half ago as you know in houston so service people have to go where the work is and not resent it so i love it there because there's still admiration for capitalism people there are unapologetic about supplying energy to the world in eastern or central Canada and the West Coast, we become apologetic about it in Canada, and it's hurt this industry a lot. It has. No, and something actually kind of touching on what you had said. I mean, we first met when I started back in 2009. One thing that has stuck with me over the years is something you told me actually years ago. It's simple, but it's the truth, and that's don't sell anything you don't believe in. And that simple approach has helped me along the way and, and is a further testament to what we, what we value within our organization. And I know for me personally, you know, I believe in our people, you know, I believe in the leadership and I believe that everything that goes through the hopper each and every single day is, is adding value to not only our customers, but like you said, energy to the world, because we're all tied in this together. I don't know if you ever remember telling me that, but it's something that you've said. And, and I want to ask you before we kind of dive into some other things, like what does that mean to you? And when you say, you know, provide something that you truly believe in, where does that resonate? Like, where does that come from for you? You bringing that up reminds me of it, Justin. And I think probably the example was, as we were breaking out new technology in Canada, there were questions about whether it was over-treating the well or not. I'd had earlier in my career working at a competitor before we started the company in 2001, I had sort of went hook, line, and sinker buying the company spin on a water-based mud system that a competitor touted years ago. And I sold it to friends in the oil field. As you guys know, it's relationships of trust. We all have deep friendships 
and you can never violate those friendships. I sold something I had never checked, hadn't seen backup data on, but it's what the company I worked for wanted people to buy because they had told investors it was going to be the next big thing. And I had a good friend have a well where it took him two weeks to come off bottom to try and log the hole. And that kind of stuck with me. So that'll be what I was referencing. That relationship survived, but he didn't use my stuff for quite a while and with good reason. So that's part of, I hope, our culture is it's decentralized. It's working managers. Baxter's in charge for a reason. You're not going to be asked to put things in the customer's well that don't work or aren't required. So you mentioned working managers, and I was going to ask this later, but since you brought it up, that's something I was curious where that philosophy came from, just because when I worked for a larger company, there were a lot of people that wore suits to the office and nobody really knew what they did, but they were very well compensated. And so it's just interesting to me as I get to know our managers throughout all of the the companies under the CES umbrella, every single one of them is intimately knowledgeable about the products and services. Many of them are calling on customers regularly. And I was just wondering, is that is your commitment to that something that is a response to seeing that sort of behavior in, in larger companies? Or, or where did you get where it was just, you can be in charge here, but you're going to be you know rolling up your sleeves like everybody else? Because you don't see it. It's interesting to me. It's good for you to ask about that, Matt, because of course you came in from Schlumberger, which is where I started in 93 in Canada. It was organic for us. It wasn't a philosophy that we then worked on building out. It just organically happened because... When the company newly went public, and so the short bit is we start a business in 2001, sell $4 million Canadian of drilling chemicals in Canada to our customers or friends. By 2006, we're up to $60 million in sales. The business generated $10 million of EBITDA, and we had a third partner in the business at the time that wanted to sell it. So our solution was take it public, monetize Dave, and keep our business. We were at that time still young guys. Now we're a little older. Working managers came because when we went public, our board was surprised that I was writing mud programs and calling on customers. And I'd charge out monthly board meetings or updates to take a customer's call or talk to programming about how to plan a well. And it was because when you start your own business, you do everything yourself. The second winter we had the company in Canada, I went to the field to relieve a guy for a health issue for three days. And I came back six weeks later. That's the oil field. It's what it took to be successful as a young upstart company. And we just kept doing that. That's the pleasure in the business is dealing with the people. So I still want to be on accounts. I've still got a couple accounts in Calgary and read mud checks on my phone. And I think that's the most measurable and obvious way that you can create value for the company. So I'm going to keep doing it. You're going to keep doing it, Matt. I got to get over the border so I can go with Justin to see the folks at Conoco where he offices we got to be with our customers. So it just happened organically. It wasn't a philosophy 
that we bet on as a strategy coming out of a strategy session. And that was the new five-year plan and the buzzword. It just happened because we are working managers. Vernon Midland is either in his yard helping somebody load a truck right now, or he's at a customer's office, or he might be in Kansas in the plant. So everyone acts like they still own it. And they treat the money like it's their own and they treat the customer like they're the most important customer in the world. Yeah. And I've seen it. I mean, since day one, that's been the philosophy. And what's crazy to me, Tom, is, is while we've grown exponentially over the years at a rate, which for most companies would be unsustainable, is how from the top have you maintain that level of commitment and 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 how did you scale up with that same mentality because not everyone thinks the same way say you do or can or other you know people that have been in that position for years who helped grow the company initially how did you scale up and maintain that culture because i think that's the problem is it when you start off small you have control and you have your fingers in everything. But as you grow, you just simply don't have the bandwidth to be able to do that. So then you need to add people. Well, those people may or may not have the same vision. So how did you manage that as you scaled up as a company? That's a great question. We worked hard and we admitted when we made mistakes. We entered the U.S. in 2009 by acquiring a little mud company in Oklahoma We had been talking to FMI, so the predecessor to AES, for about two or three years. And Jim and Catherine weren't quite ready. And they saw that when we bought the business in Oklahoma, we didn't go in and change everything on the first day. And when we did the FMI transaction, that put us in Texas. It put us in the Northeast, where there was a fledgling gas market that became the biggest one in North America. And... We structured the deal with Jim and Catherine where a big percentage of the transaction went to the key employees and it went to them over three years. So we synthetically created owners out of employees, knowing that even if you have working managers as owners or officers in public companies, none of us do this alone. And it truly takes a team from the truck driver and warehouse worker to the plant manager making invert to people managing fleets of vehicles in town and writing mud programs and taking calls, the mud engineer on the tanks. There's four to six people that affect every single drilling rig. And so it takes local leadership. We started backward integrating the business in 2009 at the end of the financial crisis, recognizing that all the large businesses in the world had one thing in common, Justin, that they had a lower cost of the product they sold than their competitor. Obviously, all good salespeople, operations people want to add value, but the surest way to get the best people is to have a lower cost of making the product than the competitor. And then somebody has something to work with. And then you customize products, you problem solve in the hole or on the rig, but it was by being decentralized, it was backward integrating supply chain, which took large investments, but we're making those investments back every day now. 
So common manufacturing platform to sell drilling chemicals and production chemicals coming out of nine when we started making mud chemicals, when we bought FMI to be in the U.S. and kept Jim and Catherine in charge. And then I was the go-between. We started into the production chemical business. And today, that's a bigger contributor to the company, actually, than drilling fluids. No, it's been interesting as we've grown and how we've basically vertically integrated ourselves into what we can offer now, which is, again, 10 years ago when I started, I would have never thought, but it's been good. And I think what we've done is really, as leaders and people internally all throughout the company have just identified the right people. And with the right people, you can accomplish anything. And that's really a differentiator between us and and our competitors, which you know, again, is, is why I've been here for so long. So I want to switch gears a little bit because I've had people ask me this question. And so I want to relay it to you so you can tell tell the listeners, but where are you from? And what was the Tom Simons before getting into the mud business? Because I think that's one thing that people are always interested in hearing. So go back to where you were you know, born or raised and, and then how you ended up in energy. Uh, well, the apple never falls, falls far, Justin. Uh, grew up in Southeast Alberta, town called Medicine Hat, the term is it as all it has hell for a basement. As a city, it's had its own gas utility for a hundred years. My dad ran a supply business there, so I drove parts to drilling rigs, parts to gas plants, and knew about the oil field. Didn't know anything technically, but as a kid, I was always the kid that was cutting grass for five bucks or shoveling snow because I'm Canadian. I had two paper routes as a kid. I always had some kind of side hustle going. I washed dishes at the white spot in junior high and eventually, you know, got the best job as a kid. I bagged groceries at Safeway, my one and only job in a union. <laughs> I just always wanted to be a business guy. And so I went to Medicine at College and then University of Lethbridge, studied business and got my way to Calgary where all the jobs were and was lucky enough to get hired in a group of six at MI, so Matt's old company, at the time the biggest drilling fluid company in the world, and got trained by them on how to run mud and how to drill a well. I never had lost the drive to have a business, but thank goodness, got sent to the field, put on ugly orange coveralls, and <laughs> actually learn something that would be of value to other people. So I had something to sell. And as you know, Justin, because we've known each other since you first came out of school, I always tell young people, try to be patient. If you want to take over the world, you need to have something to work with. So you can't come in and start in downtown sales in the oil field, or you shouldn't. You should go to the field not so you can say you did, but so that you can know more than the person you're trying to sell to. If you don't add information or value to their operation, whether it's to drill it, frack it, produce it, or another industry, if you don't know more than the person that you're seeing, they don't need you in their office. So I think you need to be an expert at something in the world and then you can make a business around it of supporting yourself and your family and contributing to your company. And I think we've done a pretty good job as a business in having the people that represent our company to our customers 
the common thread would be that everyone has field experience. So they know what they're talking about. Yeah. I mean, cause when I came out of school, I had three years of drilling rig experience. And so of course, you know, young and full of yeah, just full of energy, I figured, oh, I can come into the office and I'll know what I need to know. And it was so intimidating to have, you know, guys like Jason Gray and, you know, Marco and I mean, you Ken's everyone had that mud experience. And so, and then I remember, you know, a gentleman that I worked with that we both know real well said, you know, he, he was a good mud hand. He said, Justin, if you want to continue to excel, you have to go back to the field. And so I was, you know, grateful to have had that opportunity down here in the U S but, but yeah, I think that being said, it's interesting because I, you know, throughout my career as an account manager, there's been a lot of times where I've been able to go to meetings by myself and be able to, you know, answer questions and do what I needed to do. Whereas in other situations, there's had to be more people and whether that was for a directional company or whatever, but case in point is that as times, I mean, there's no, if it's not as obvious now that more than ever is that our, the industry is shifting. And so, like you said, the more you can add value and more experience you have, especially as the headcount continues to, to be reduced over time, you're right. You have to be patient and you have to be willing to put in the time. And I think everyone on our floor and Matt, yourself included, and even the folks that work under your supervision have all had that field experience, right? I mean, Matt, how talk a little bit about from your perspective, because I know you, when talking about field experience, you've worked all over the world. The interesting thing is, you know, with respect to field experience, it's incredible how valuable it is just by the way you can relate to conditions and having that on the ground. And, and it, it was fascinating to me, speaking of the specifics there, just dealing with folks who were much more numbers people, very disoriented, you know, maybe no rig experience and trying to explain why we needed you know, something at a warehouse or, oh, you know, this would make our numbers look bad. And it's like, but I don't think you understand the upside. And if you've been on a rig, you've run some mud, you've seen some of those things, you can see it. And then with respect to being able to answer questions for a customer, I think it's just interesting because field experience is so broad and it could be all over the world or it could be in a bunch of different locations, but even just sitting around waiting to come out of the hole, even, you know, something breaking that, you know, you've got a couple of hours before the next thing picks up actually kind of paints a, a very good picture where, you know, a mud plant operator, when you, you know, they, it's one thing to know, Hey, we're on losses. Oh boy, I better get mixing or the, Oh wow. How bad are the losses? What else can we do? And kind of understand what the other steps, what everybody else is probably doing to solve that problem at the same time. It just kind of brings everybody in sync, you know? And, and the thing is I got very diverse field experience, but it wasn't for very long. You know, I was on a six week on, two week off rotation for a few years and I spent a fair amount of time in the office, but it's something that you can never get, you move into the office and it's very difficult to get back. And so for a lot of our, our folks out there who we've got some really talented folks that I want them working with me right now, but I know what's in their best interest is for them to stay on the rigs for a little bit longer and give them that opportunity. And so I guess, I think we all see it. It's there's some really talented people that can get away without doing it, but it's just, it's very, very hard to replicate that value. And I think we're all in agreement there. Yeah. So Tom, I mean, again, you've been in the mud industry now for years, you've seen the ups and downs from a mud business perspective, how have things, or maybe even just oil field services in general, how have things changed over the years and where do you see that oil field services going into the future? And, and whether that's, 
you know, from companies having to do more with less, adopting new technologies. I mean, how do you see things going and like any observations into the future that you can speak of? Yeah, I'll maybe frame it this way, Justin. I would expect most of the listeners are going to be people that are work for us or other mud companies, just because that's who's interested in this stuff. I'll frame it maybe by going back 10 or 15 years or 25 in my case. When I started as a mud hand, almost all of the mud systems, at least for land in North America, we put minerals and a little bit of chemicals in water, change them to make them thicker, thin, heavier, light. And maybe it got funky if you put something in it to prevent water-sensitive shale from taking on water and sloughing. So maybe a bit of KCL or potassium sulfate or, or a little bit of polymer. That was two or $3,000 a day of minerals, a couple hundred dollars for the mud engineer. He took a newspaper to the rig and kind of tried to stay out of the way and keep track of inventory and make sure you could get a log down a vertical well when it was done. What's changed over the last 20 years, why the U.S. pre-COVID could produce 13 million barrels a day of oil and Canada could produce 4 million barrels a day of oil. So not quite satisfying North America's demand, but you know around 70%, which is for all of us in industry, I think we can be proud that we contribute to energy security for the U.S. and Canada. And I hope that remains a thought of people when they vote in a few weeks. But what's changed is horizontal drilling and multi-stage fracking. So being able to go into reservoirs where you shatter the rock with a frack and can direct where that energy goes, so create stages and produce out of rock that you didn't used to be able to produce out of. And to drill that build or elbow in the well, the curve, the industry ran away from water-based muds and went to putting chemistry and minerals in refined oils. The daily sort of value or cost of those additives went from two or 3,000 to 10,000 a day. The complexity of how to run those fluids became higher. So you had sort of people with better aptitude, call it going into the mud business. It became an engineered service instead of a commodity. And that allowed independents like us to be a better mud provider than MI, Baroid, or Intech at Baker Hughes, which were more a loss leader in an integrated bundling to the producer. And what I've seen over the last 10 years is... MI, Baroid, and Baker were sort of one, two, three in the world for mud. And in North America, Baroid's the only meaningful player left. They're the mud company of Halliburton. It's become us and some other bigger independents that created, you know, sort of a better outcome when we were the mud company than a line of the integrateds. And the customers didn't need to take all of the services from the big integrateds in order to access frac spreads or a rotary steerable directional tool, something that they needed but could only get by taking everything from their service provider. As service companies went to the public markets to get capital, 
which they could up until a couple of years ago, they could go build frack spreads or directional equipment and compete with the big integrateds on all this equipment heavy service lines. So the need to buy drilling fluids from the big three service companies to get the equipment, that's sort of faded over time. And that's allowed companies like us to now work at all the super majors and still with the big independents that we sort of went to the dance with, like an EOG obviously is our biggest example. And those companies are results-driven, not process-driven. So back to what you guys were talking about with people needing practical experience, we don't have a process that drives every decision. We rely on the judgment of ethical, experienced experts to decide things quickly to get a better outcome for our customer. And that requires a high level of trust in the capabilities of people and what they're going to do. But that's one of our, I think, competitive advantages as a company is we're not super centralized. People have the ability to make decisions. They just need to make the right ones. And we get a better outcome for the customer. So the I think the changes have been horizontal drilling, how people complete wells. For us as a company, it was a game changer. We took the business from doing 60 million of revenue in 2006. Our trailing 12 months is $1.3 billion of revenue. And about half of that is upstream. So drilling and completions. And the other half would be selling chemistry for treating production and pipelines. The change is that is how it's technically difficult to drill these wells put a liner in place to properly complete it, and then obviously have that well last a very long time. So what's your response to the question or when folks say, because arguably speaking, in some cases, unconventionals and the quote unquote shill revolution that we've had since about 2010 has somewhat commoditized a lot of services and a lot of offerings. And I've even heard folks say, well, Unconventional is it's easy. Like, you know, people don't have to come and sell service. I just, you know, we need it to be as cheap as possible. We, you know what I mean? And so, you know, that's, that's a common topic of discussion. And, and so I'm curious, like how you would respond to maybe those types of comments when saying, well, drilling fluids is commoditized. It's, it's unconventional. It's easy. There's no, you know, it's, we don't need anything. We don't need the fluff. We just want, you know, the cheap. I think it's a blend of both. We can survive and even to some degree, thrive with people that view what we do as a commodity because our cost base is as low as anyone in the industry because of vertical integration. But that's not what we want. We don't get the best people by being the cheapest and then having compensation be the cheapest. Right. We get the best people because we can be at the top end of compensation. Same with the operator, the customers that spend the least to get the most it's because of their people and the rock for us the outcome is the experience of the people and the quality of the products and then how people execute i don't personally believe that each one of these wells is like manufacturing you might be able to predict the outcome of the production and mostly predict what it would cost to bring it to market But how those wells go underground, 
as everyone on this call knows, they change every time. So there are unpredictable events that happen two miles underground and two miles sideways. Those holes don't look like a straw. They look like a corkscrew. So the further they go, the tougher it is to clean the rock out of the hole and the tougher it is to get that pipe to slide and get the liner to go all the way to TD. So I'm confident that sensors and you know computer learning is not going to replace mud engineers. It's not going to replace account managers. I think it remains a people business and it's the people that value add the product so that you end up using less of a good product and everyone wins. No, that's a great, great response. And I mean, that, that approach and what we've stood by since the beginning has allowed us to, to continue to gain market share and, and, you know, even to where we stand today, which is better than we ever have. And so, yeah, I think people that, you know, view the flip side, you can see where those businesses end up and it's definitely not where, we, where we're going to end up. So without getting into details, again, I appreciate that response. And, and uh, for all the listeners out there, I'm sure that's, that's something that will resonate. So I guess one question I have is, you know, you talk about talking to the young folks and being patient. What would you tell the 20 year old Tom Simons? If you could sit down with him right now, what, what would you tell him? <laughs> I'm trying. I've got a 16 and 19 and a 22 year old. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I'll tell you, having been a business person was a great training for being a parent. I wish I was as patient with my kids as I am at work. Sometimes. <laughs> professional hat comes off and the dad hat goes on. But I tell my kids, I've mentored a young man that works for us in Midland since he was a young kid through family, is learn a skill. If you're science or math bent, obviously that's easy to pursue. But if you're like me and you're the kid shoveling snow and cutting grass and trying to be a business person and that appeals to you in life, Go study science or math or engineering because you'll be able to apply that knowledge in all sorts of sectors. You can work in healthcare, you can work in government, work in energy, which I think will remain largely oil and gas for a long time. But I tell young people to spend 18 to 25 learning something and then 25 to 65 putting that knowledge to work and make yourself feel content starting at the bottom and going up. When we hire young petroleum engineers or petroleum techs, if I'm involved in recruiting those people, I tell them don't get too good to work at a service company and go work at an oil company the first time they offer you a job. At least give us a couple years And if we can get someone in for a couple of years, we can start to brainwash them that we've got a unique thing here. And everyone wants to be part of something that's, you know, greater than what they can do by themselves. And that's what I hope we can offer our people, you know, an authentic being part of something that's important and doing good. So, Tom, a lot of people ask questions about our company culture, and it it sounds a lot like you know, a lot of it's fairly organic and it's, it's not as structured. And what really intrigues me is that I've been listening to a number of audiobooks just on organizational behavior and structures, and they seem to carry a lot of the themes that CES is already doing with respect to working managers, D 
decentralized management, you know, empowering people to make decisions. And I just find it a little bit ironic that, you know, you've kind of been able to make this happen when larger organizations are are studying and trying to figure out how to change themselves to adapt in what appears to be a very efficient, effective structure. And I was just curious if you have any thoughts or are there anything specifically where you picked up along the way and you said, we have to do that? Or did a lot of these things just happen because of the people that you've been able to bring to the company? That's a great question, Matt. When I think back to the M&A that we've done that expanded drilling fluids into the U.S. for the company, it expanded production chemicals for the company into the U.S., and it's how we got into manufacturing chemistry for all these sales lines, I've had a fear of failure. And so when we acquired highly successful businesses that we thought we could create revenue growth in by combining them with us, because our strategy's never been synergies. It hasn't been put two things together and cut a third of the people to create the accretion or value creation. It's been that we're going to grow revenue. And ideally, the message, if it's legitimate, is we don't just need the people that are already there. They need to go tell their friends and we need more people. But it became clear to me over time that highly successful private business people are that way because they're capable of and want to be in charge. And so when we took on businesses, It was just a necessity to leave people in charge, but provide corporate governance, try to drive the back-end cost of the business down to allow people to then be more competitive on price to their customer while perhaps even improving margins. But it was just the fear of people leaving and that that would hurt the business. So I've enabled people who... This is an easy business in my mind, and it's why we have working managers. There are people that make the products. There are people that mix the products. There's people that sell them. And then there's people that do the administration so we can get paid. And if you're not doing one of those few things, then I'm not sure what you're doing. And we don't have room, Matt, for the people in nice suits to come in in middle management You have to sell this stuff or make it or check it or invoice it. And if you're not associated with one of those four things, I'm trying to figure out what you do there and you might not be there a long time. And I tell people that in crashes is get yourself attached to a customer because the business is cyclical and we keep needing to lean the company out. But it wasn't a a management philosophy so much as it was more tactical that eventually looked like a strategy and then it's worked. So we've turned the tactical win into a strategy for the business. When we look at M and a, unless there's a unique product or manufacturing capability, what you're buying is the book of business that the people create. And we can't endanger that by chasing the people off. It was amazing to me having gone for, coming from a larger company and, and that sort of thing where there were people who, oh, we have someone who does that for you. Oh, you have to call Columbia to get that done. Just how disjointed all the decisions and connections were made. And we had a guy, uh, 
come over who worked for two of the other large service companies. And I kind of had to warn him, like, you're going to have a six month hangover of being confused that you can make your own decisions, you know? And the other part of it was, you know, there may be there, you're not gonna be able to tell anybody that's not my job. You're going to have to do it. And his response was, I see everybody working so hard here. It's easy if, you know, yeah, I haven't run a mud check in a while, but if, if you called me in the middle of the night and told me that's what had to be done, I know everybody else is working their tail off too. And so you just, you have this build of momentum where everybody kind of empowers everybody else. I've never seen anything like it. And, and I, I really love and appreciate it. Well, yeah, you know, it's funny. You mentioned that too, is regarding everyone being, you know, working managers. I mean, talk about an incentive and, and just, I mean, it drives performance because we're all competitive to some degree and you can't just run and hide and pretend like you're doing something like you get exposed real fast if you're not doing something. So, I mean, I see the guy next to me pumping out a bunch of programs, writing bids, making cold calls. You know, I'm going to start doing it and I'm going to do more of it. And I think that's one thing that we've, you know, internally we compete with each other and it's friendly, but I've heard people come from big companies. It's like, you can run and hide for a month or two if you don't have much to do, but there's just no room for that here. And so while you may work hard, you certainly get compensated for it. But I think you have to thrive like that now, especially, I mean, develop systems and efficiencies and, you know, like, like Tom, you've said it many times is just do more with less, work hard and have, you know, strategically pick the right people to come on board and we'll continue to grow. Maybe even though rig count might not grow, you know, domestically, we'll, we'll continue to grow as a company and we'll find ways to add value, whether it's in drilling, completions, production, and who knows where else from that. I mean, t- 10 years ago, I wouldn't imagine being where we're at today. I mean, I can imagine in 10 years from now, what, what kind of opportunities and, and what kind of industries we may even be penetrating. I mean, who knows? It's exciting. There's a lot of pessimism right now around oil and gas. And the more you read on the news, it's either fear or hate. But I'm honestly optimistic. I think the chaos is going to breed innovation. And I think companies like ourselves that don't just roll over and and accept what's going on and and push through, we're going to continue to persevere and, and come out ahead. I mean, it's it's obvious and coming from the inside out, I wouldn't want to be anywhere else, I can promise you. I feel optimistic, guys. I think we've got a great company that's creating great results in a horrible period of time for business. And if this is muted energy demand, the world's still putting away 90 million barrels a day of oil. So I think we're secure. I know the business today owes the bank no money. I would like to say that it was a strategic decision 20 years ago to stay out of equipment, but it was just practical. And so we've been able to convert receivables into cash, shrink inventory, and get day-to-day costs low enough where we've been able to sustain about three quarters of our employees and hope we can recall ones that have been furloughed or laid off because upstream activity is so quiet right now. But I think we're going to be an essential service to the world's supply of energy. And I think energy is going to largely be oil and gas for a long time. Well, with that said, I don't have any other questions. I mean, it's been an absolute pleasure. Matt, I'll let you have the stage. Do you have anything else you want answered or any questions or comments? 
I think a good final word, Tom, you know, we have a lot of field personnel who are listening on this and they may feel more disconnected to an office environment or, you know, senior management than anyone. But you in our investor calls and in a number of other scenarios, you've brought up just how valuable those people are. And so I thought maybe it would be a great way to close if you could just kind of send out a message to our field personnel, you know, the ones who are, are cutting open the sacks and, and making it happen for us. Yeah, that's a great prop, Matt. I would say to the people that are walking mud tanks, living in a pickup, thank you. And I would say that you should feel proud of the job that you do. The three of us on this call all did that job. If you keep doing that job, you can provide for your family and for people that want variety. There are obviously other parts of the business people could work in. We've taken upstream, so mud engineers, and repurposed them to work in the production side at different points in time in the business. So being a mud engineer could lead to being a company man for an oil company. It would be a great career to stay a mud engineer. You could move into other lines within our company, like production treating, but feel proud about what you're doing. And we appreciate it. Well, thank you, Tom. Guys, I think that wraps us up. But Tom, we really appreciate having you on. It's wonderful to have a leader that's so easy to talk to, that's so candid. And you know, as we've discussed, someone who's done the job before. It does really feel like we're all part of something great. And we're just glad we could get some of your time to, to share more of that message. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm proud of you guys having this podcast. This was your own initiative. I think that's telling of our culture. Yeah, no, it is. It's been a pleasure. And again, thanks to our leadership to have faith in us to <laughs> go out on a whim and do something totally outside the norm. And so far, it's been a great experience. And being able to have conversations with people like yourselves, Tom, has been an absolute pleasure. And for all the listeners out there, we appreciate all the support. If you could subscribe, share the content, check us out on LinkedIn, and just keep spreading the good word and continue to be positive and work hard great things are happening and yeah, leave a review that also helps support the show as well. And if you have any questions or comments for Matt and I hit us up on LinkedIn. And if not, send us an email at the flowline podcast at aesfluids.com. Take care for now. Be safe. Thanks everybody. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of the Flowline. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.